Hello from Midori House in London on Friday the 27th of December 2013. This is the edit special of The Globalist on Monaco 24 with me, Markus Hippi. During the following hour we will look back to the year 2013 and we will discuss through the defining trends in food, drinks, restaurants and entrepreneurial success stories like raw food from Iceland. They love food with history, you know. So I deep into the history, the culture, the food culture of nations, and I go to the root, you know. From raw food in Iceland to the rise of Peruvian cuisine. Peru has become a real hotbed for cuisine, for gastronomy. The ingredients that are available there, the flavors and the tastes, and the different habitats have made our cuisine very special. We also look at the boom in microbreweries and craft beer. Beer has saved the world many times. I mean, it's the reason why we've quit being gathered and hunters to agricultural-based society. Beer is a good thing. Plus, we will have a roundtable with our three studio guests today, right here on the Section E special of The Globalist on Monocle 24 with me, Markus Hippi. For this special edition of The Globalist, we welcome in the studio three guests that will have much to tell us about what happened to the world of food in 2013. I welcome Adam Hyman, restaurant consultant and publisher of The Code Bulletin, Bruce Palling, former food columnist for The Wall Street Journal Europe and restaurant consultant, and finally Meredith Erickson, food writer and co-author of the recently published book Le Pitchen Cookbook. Welcome to the studio. Thank you. I thought we would start today's program by talking about the defining trends of the year. Monocle's New York bureau chief, Santiago Rodriguez Tardidi, spent the first half of the year 2013 in London and the second half in New York. And these are his menu memories from 2013. I think this past year there were three things that really caught my eye. The first one was uh, kale, uh, that darker, crispier and bitter cousin of lettuce that was popping up in menus around the world. It also featured in, in juices as a nutritional addition to smoothies. And uh, you could also find it in less healthy versions like uh, deep fried chips. And what about in terms of drinking, Santiago? What, what's been the main drinks for 2013? craft beer and whiskey. It seems that everyone was setting up a distillery or a brewery in their backyards with bottles coming everywhere from Brooklyn to Osaka. Uh, I particularly liked the Hudson whiskey that can be found here in, in the New York region and the, the beers produced by Denmark's McKellar Brewery. The Black Fist, for example, a beer that's been aged for two years in 10 different barrels is quite unique. And also, finally, I want to talk about your last item, which I believe is the most... I mean, you live in the city with the most famous hybrid in the world. Can you tell us what is hybrids and which product I'm talking about as well? Well, they all sound like some weird experiment gone wrong. And and they're basically the mix of two products. Dominique Ancel's Cronut was one of the most popular ones. This is a mix between a croissant and a donut. But uh, Keiso Shimamoto's Ramen Burger... A burger patty that is sandwiched between two ramen pieces ranked top of the list as well. That was Monaco's New York bureau chief Santiago Rodriguez Tarditi speaking to Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And indeed, I am joined here in the studio by three culinary experts, Adam Hyman, Bruce Palling and Meredith Erickson. Did you agree with Santiago on what he said were the biggest things of the year? There he just listed the rise of craft beer and whiskey, kale and different hybrids such as cronuts and ramen burgers. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I have to agree definitely with the cronut kind of phenomenon that's gone on thanks to Dominique uh, Ansel and his bakery in New York. I mean, I'm not I'm not quite sure exactly when it first appeared, but I think it was in the summer sometime and I think people are still queuing up from 5am waiting for the cronut and we've had kind of different adaptions over in London. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think the cronut's definitely a uh, 2013 I would actually, um, I definitely agree with that, but I think it's important to note that the cronut is almost solely a New York trend. 
it's not a London trend. It's not an international trend at all. It's just a, a New York thing. And um, unfortunately, is my belief in this case, uh, it's become a global thing because of Twitter. Uh, people feel like they know the cronut so well, whereas, you know, 99.9% of us have actually never tried one. (laughs) I don't even really know what it looks like, but I've heard the word about, you know, 30 times each day. To me, the the trends in Britain, at least, have been fairly sort of um, depressing because the two most important trends are the rise or the return of the bistro in all its shapes and forms, including Balthazar from New York, which is a copy of a copy. And the the burger thing still hasn't blown itself out. And I think both of them are pretty hopeless and not very interesting, don't take us anywhere. The ramen phenomenon is good. That's happened a lot. There's been a lot of different ramen bars in the past year. And I suspect that the emergence of the Peruvian cuisine in Europe is going to grow and grow. I don't think it's come anywhere near the potential growth of that. And that, of course, affects drinks as well because of the Piscos and all the rest of it. We're going to be talking about drinks a bit later. There you mentioned burgers, and that's been something that's been very visible, at least in London, internationally as well. What What is your view? Where do these trends actually come from? Like, what explains that people start all of a sudden craving for burgers more than ever before? I think, I think, I think with something like burgers, I think you do have to look somewhere like New York. But I also think London's got a lot better now at the informal style of eating. I think we've always been very good at formal eating, but now we've got a lot more places, especially in, in, in Soho and Covent Garden, where people are happy to walk in, even queue up for a burger. I thought it was a very good sign in the summer when two of the big burger names from um, the US came over. And I think everyone agreed that the burgers we were doing in London were actually better than the ones that have come over from America. And I think that's a good sign for London and everyone involved in the whole burger phenomenon. Uh, I feel, you know, I'm always a huge cheeseburger fan, of course, but I think um, for me personally, uh, the burger phenomenon comes down to it's the economy, dummy, you know, uh, in famous quotes. Um People, everybody loves cheeseburgers. Cheeseburgers are cheap to eat. Um, but more importantly for London... Uh, you know, journalists, um, publicists, people who used to be the mainstay, bankers, uh, everyone, most people have left their sectors and the time is now to be a doer and to open a physical shop and to sell a physical thing. And restaurateurs have never done better as they're doing now. Uh, And I mean, how many times, I remember when I first saw Byron Burger and I thought, really, burgers? People, aren't we over this? And when did Byron Burger open? I don't know. Like five or six years five ago. Five or think. six yeah. years ago. And it's it just you know, sold for a lot of money as well. I mean, hundreds of millions <laughs> yeah. of dollars. So who's the dummy now? <laughs> you know, um, I, I, yeah, that's what I really think it comes down to uh, to the economy, really, and, and people opening up shot. And I mean, smartly. We're going to be talking about business side of things, actually, very soon. But before that, we take a very short break. At GE, we constantly strive to improve and refine our manufacturing processes for minimal environmental impact while optimizing the products themselves. As Global Technology Director Christine Firstos explains, Today's manufacturing needs to be very focused on not only giving quality work that flows through to our products, but also doing it in a way that uses technologies that include recycling, capturing materials, being able to quickly innovate new types of developments into an industry that traditionally does not move quickly. At GE, the future is at work. Welcome back. You are listening to the Section E special of the Globalist on Monocle 24. I am Marcus Hippie. And in the studio with me, I have Adam Hyman, restaurant consultant and publisher of the Code Bulletin. Bruce Palling, restaurant consultant and former food columnist for the Wall Street Journal Europe. And Meredith Erickson, food writer and co-author of the recently published Le Pigeon Cookbook. Before the break, we discussed the food phenomena that defined the year 2013. We continue now by highlighting the business 
businesses that can look back at this year with immense pride after achieving significant success. One such success story that we actually already talked about comes from New York and was created by French chef Dominique Ancel, who invented a hybrid pastry called the cronut. As we mentioned earlier, cronuts became a worldwide phenomenon, but if you are confused still as to what they are, we spoke to Dominique Ancel to find out. So the cronut was uh, a little bit of a challenge to myself and the team. I wanted to do a donut, but not a classical American donut. I want to come up with something new, something fresh and original. So I worked on the recipe for about two months, did like 10, 10 different batches in order to come up with the perfect texture. I wanted something that was similar to a croissant, but it's, it is not a croissant. It's a different, different dough, but it's the same technique. Something that could fry easily without being too greasy. Something that could hold up the cream and stay nice and moist. It takes about three days to, to prepare a batch of cornets. The first day we make the dough and we let it rest. The second day we incorporate the butter and we fold the dough. And the third day we cut it, we fry it, we fill it and we glaze it. So it's a very uh, labor intense and it's a long process. The kitchen is actually running 24 hours every day. And we're trying to keep up with production and sell as many people as we can. Dominic Ansel undoubtedly made a significant profit with his cronut business. Another business success that was featured on the menu Monocle 24's food program was from Reykjavik, where ex-television chef Sola Eriksdottir introduced raw food to Icelandics, with such success that she had as many as three restaurants in Reykjavik. I met her in Iceland a few months ago. One of my favorite things is lemongrass, lime leaf, or the ethnic, you know, like pesto here. We make pesto, cheeseless pesto, and people love it. Because then we go to Italy, and then I, I, I find out, you know, people love Italian food. So I was trying to make a really good vegetarian pesto. And then what do people lo- love? Okay, the Indian food. They love um, food with history, you know. So I dip into the history, the culture, the food culture of nations, and I go to the root, you know. Um, the The Indian people have been doing it for thousands of years, you know. And also people from Thailand, also people from from China or Japan. I, I think that, that is the, the magic, you know. You, you, you go where there is a strong tradition playing with flavor, you know. And then you always find out that it is a reason why they blend this and that together. It's because of the health or something like that, you know. When I'm interviewing you now in Reykjavik, it's an amazing day outside, the sun is shining and it's pretty warm, and that's something that is not exactly the case in Iceland all the time. (laughs) How do you go with getting the ingredients for your food, say, during the coldest winter months? Oh, we have to import a lot of it. Though we have, like, I have some farmers, some greenhouse farmers that supplies me because I try to have it local if possible. But we are in Iceland, so we have to import a lot. It's not that difficult. It costs, but everything costs. That was Sola Eriksdottir, who has very successfully introduced raw food to Iceland. Adam Hyman, Bruce Pellinger, Meredith Eriksson, what would you name yourself as the biggest business success stories globally? I don't know about globally, but in, certainly in, in British terms, um, there's been a lot of brilliant things done by the Seti brothers. Karam Seti has one one star Michelin place called Trishna, avant-garde Indian. He's just opened an incredibly successful new one called Gymkhana in Mayfair, which has been sort of rammed from day one. And he, his brother, who's a banker, has invested in Bubble Dogs, which is another great success. And they're about to open a place in Copenhagen, which is bizarre when you think of it, because we all assume that Scandinavian cuisine is coming out from there. But um, that, I think, is one of the most successful. Other ones like the Boxer Brothers, who do Rita's Bar and Diner in the East End. What do you think then is behind these six stories? You know, what is, the, what is the recipe for success in that case? I think it's being at the head of a curve that has become, becomes fashionable. 
and having smart people behind it and a media machine behind you. And uh, if you have a story to tell, it's enormously beneficial to, to make it sort of spread, if you like. It's fairly straightforward. Yeah, and I think, especially with the settees, and, and I, um, I agree with Bruce, um, Jim Connor's a fantastic restaurant that's just opened. Um, but I think with the settees, they have got the fortunate side of they've got some cash behind them because I think we all know, especially in London over the past year, it ain't cheap to open a restaurant here. You know, just to find a site in Soho, Mayfair, Covent Garden, you're talking serious money. Adam, so, what would you mention as other success stories internationally? I think internationally, I think it's hard internationally because there aren't, you know, when you actually think of international brands, a lot of the time they're franchised. But I do think, and it's not necessarily a new success story, but it goes from strength to strength, has to be Nick Jones and Soho House. I mean, you could argue it's becoming more of a international hotel chain, um, dare I say, rather than a private members club. But you can't ignore what he's doing. Meredith, what do you think about, you know, what have been the most exciting, interesting business success stories of the year? Well, I, um, I'm i not from London and I'm also uh, from the book world. So I can tell you that um, uh, Ten Speed Press, who put out, who's put out my last couple of books, just put out Otto Lange's first book uh, in the US. And um, the US has really adopted him. You know, and he, uh, um, I believe it was Julia Molskin in the New York Times um, said, you know, this is the book of the decade. This isn't the book of the year, but plenty Jerusalem, this way of eating is what's transformed uh, dinner tables and home. I'm interested in in home cooks and this is how people are eating today. And then, you know, um, stores from Whole Foods, all the way, you know, down to your kind of middle of the road grocery stores in the U.S. now have uh, Nigella seeds and different kinds of foods that a lot of Americans weren't eating before. Um, so for me, Yotam has just become like a global force. And he, I mean, he's, he's so great that all the success really to him. I tell you another thing that's happened, which is slightly below the radar, but which is fascinating, is the emergence of the high-end foodie event. And this is done by a very good friend of mine called Andrea Petrini, who is this extraordinary guy living in Lyon, head of the top 50 Pellegrino Awards for France, used to be in Cook at Raw, and he's now formed this extraordinary thing called Galenaz, which is a rock and roll group of top chefs. We're talking the top, David Chang, um, Rene Redzepi, Daniel Patterson, all these top guys. They go to a site, I've been to two of them, one was in Bruges, where you uh, Ghent, sorry, and you do thirty versions of an old-fashioned classic dish, in any way you like. Then in Lima recently, I went to an event which was the sex life of an octopus was the theme. <laughs> so everything you did had to involve an octopus, and so all these top chefs, including the same guys I just mentioned, performed for eighty diners who bought their seat for twelve hours, but they could. Uh, portion it off and give it to someone else for four hours. And it was the most incredible rock and roll event with music to accompany every dish. He's off to New York in April to do the same thing. That, I think, is a fantastically interesting development. Could, could I actually weigh in on this? Of Just, course. Because this is something that I feel we could have a, an entire hour program on. With Mad Symposium and the, the two events that you just mentioned. I have to say from my perspective that, you know, I know David Chang very well. He wrote the foreword to our book and I'm a, I'm a huge fan of his and, and he's a good friend. And I think that he would also agree with what I'm saying. And that's that I hope that the next year and the way that things move in the direction that we're heading, the only way that these things have importance and impact to me, and I, I think to a lot of people, is if they start affecting farms, farmers, seeds, and the way that people who are the most of us in the middle class are actually eating because otherwise I do find it quite kind of masturbatory to be honest in, in some ways and I do find it more of a spectacle and I think that in the end if Chang and Renee have influence and impact on government policy and it, and people start eating in a different in a more positive way and it's affordable for others then 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 it's worth something. Well, I think Do you agree? Or? No, I don't. Actually. Okay, that's fine. I think that's that's a worthy aim, and that's what slow food does very well, yeah. and lots of other pressure groups do too. But the very high end of uh, cuisine is nothing to do with sustainability or worthiness. It's to do with theatre, events, sexiness, and it appeals to a, a tiny board elite who want to do something new. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think there are spin-offs from it, and I think it's 
enhancing the whole idea of experimenting in food. And it does trickle down at a very high level, but not to the level that you're talking about. I think that you're, I think that you're completely right. And I think that there's a lot of worth in, in these big ideas. And I, I just think that it's been the focus almost for a little bit too long. And it's starting to create an eye roll among myself and, and a, lot of, a lot of others. Mm. But I, I, I mean, I'm sure it's a blast. Mm. Absolutely. Let's continue this discussion after a short break. We're going to be talking about regional cuisine after this. In 2013, Latin America got possibly more attention than ever before. The world was following the region's economic success story and Brazil's preparations for the World Cup and Olympic Games. Also, Latin American food got more attention than ever before. For example, the rise of Peruvian food was hard to ignore just if you looked at all the cookbooks appearing on bookshop shelves. In London, Martin Morales, founder of successful ceviche restaurant in Soho, published a book on Peru and its culinary heritage. Earlier this year, he dropped by Midori House to speak to a fellow Latin American, Monocle's researcher Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Well, Peruvian food is packed with flavor. It's fresh ingredients and we have so many dishes as well that come from so many roots, not just from ancient Peru from the time before the Incas, but also through the migration of Spanish, Italian, African, Chinese and Japanese people, all of which have left their mark and all of which have created what we now call this incredible Peruvian food, Peruvian cuisine, Peruvian gastronomy. It's known as one of the most exciting cuisines in the world. Even Escoffier said it was one of the top three cuisines in the world, you know, many, many years ago. So it's exciting that now people are discovering it through our restaurant and through many others. And even in Latin America, it's considered to be unique. You know, I'm from Brazil, for example, and there's been a trend of Peruvian restaurants in Sao Paulo as well. So it's becoming quite a global trend, Peruvian food. Absolutely. And um, it really starts in Peru. And it's, I mean, we've had our cuisine for many, many years, obviously. But in the last sort of 10, 15 years, I guess Peru has become a real hotbed for cuisine, for gastronomy. The ingredients that are available there, the flavors and the tastes and the different habitats have made our cuisine very special. So our cuisine started spreading in Chile and started spreading in Argentina, in Brazil, in the US, in Spain and now in Britain. So it's a really exciting time and it's great that we you know we're pioneering this and we're we're heading this and we're doing great work here in the UK as well. I want to know more about your story Martin. Did you grow up in Peru I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean I I was born in Peru. My grandmother and my mother came from the Andes from a small village called Santiago de Chuco near Trujillo which is in the north, very remote village in the Andes and and it was through my grandmother and my great aunts Carmela and Otilia, but Carmela in particular in Lima who really nurtured my love for cooking from a very, very young age. And then also growing up with these Andean ingredients, the grains, the cereals, the different dishes as well. That's where my passion began. And I came here when I was a teenager and I brought all that knowledge all that appreciation for dishes and that love for cooking. And I'm happy you did. Thank you very much. And then you opened Ceviche. Yeah, well, um, it's been something that we've wanted to do, that I've wanted to do for 10 years. And I just said a few years ago, stop talking about it and do it. So I put all my energy, all my money and everything that I had and built a fantastic team. And so about a year and a half ago, we opened our doors of Ceviche in Frith Street in Soho in London. It's been a lot of fun. Restaurant uh, Martin Morales there talking about Peruvian cuisine. Adam Bruce and Meredith, what do you think, what is behind this attention Peruvian cuisine is getting all of a sudden? What's happened? What's changed? Well, I think everyone likes new things. And before that, it was Eastern Mediterranean, which is still on its way up as well. As well. Um, the reason that Peruvian cuisine has worked is it's very bold, very straightforward. I think it's almost the Thai cuisine of Latin America. Um, I was out there recently. San Pellegrino now have their annual top 50 awards just for Latin America, but it was based in Lima, and it will be next year as well. The quality of the ingredients there is first rate, and they have two brilliant chefs, Gaston Ocurio and um, 
Virgilio Martinez. And they're both working in Spain, Paris, and London. They're about to open in London. So there's a lot of impact from those. And you've got existing uh, restaurants as well with Martin doing them too. It's very attractive. It's very straightforward. It's very easy to understand. Um, and I think it's it's going to go on, continue getting better and better. On any level, what do you connect this attention to the general attention Latin America is getting nowadays? Yeah, you'd probably argue that because it's now a lot easier to travel to Latin America, there's a lot more happening. There's lots of sporting events about to happen. I guess that's part of the reason. And as Bruce mentioned, you've got these chefs now actually coming over to London and Spain and Paris. So they're obviously bringing their food to people who maybe wouldn't have normally eaten it. But also, I just think it's it's quite a familiar food in a way. I, I, I'm not quite sure how to explain it, but it, it, it's it's very easy on the eye. It's got the most amazing colours. Um, it's clean, it's fresh, and it's also quite healthy. So I think it's it's quite an easy cuisine to get on with. Meredith, if you were to mention some other areas besides Latin America when it comes to countries that have been getting more attention and getting more popularity during the year 2013, what would you name? Um, well, I wouldn't. Uh, I mean, of course, I think that Scandinavia is going from strength to strength. But within, um, within North America, uh, Portland, Oregon continues to kind of be one of the places um you know if you're in i've been to portland paris hackney you know all three in two weeks and if you you know if you ask me to turn the language off to your turn off my hearing i wouldn't know where i was it's all kind of quite similar um but the difference is that i find portland extremely authentic because you can live in a beautiful four-bedroom bungalow for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and people start in portland because they really they don't have the investors that it takes to make anything in Paris or London. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that it's continuing to grow. Uh, with the third wave coffee, Stumptown was kind of the beginning of that. And people are looking to Portland for coffee. There's also Los Angeles, um, which is on my mind because 10 Speed and uh, Random House in general have been sending a lot of editors down there about approaching new books, uh, which is always the second thing after new restaurants um, to happen. Do you agree with those thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I have to admit, I, I don't know that part of America very well, but we were also just talking off air about the posh kebab. Um, and I think, and I've heard Alan Yao is looking to do something in London because we've, we've got this kind of perception, especially in Britain, that a kebab... Oh, you're talking about um, luxury kebabs. That's yeah, something that was featured yeah. on uh, the menu, Monaco's Food and Drinks program, program a few weeks ago. Indeed, in Paris, you can nowadays get luxury versions of kebabs. So that's something that's also arriving to London. Well, yeah, I've heard Alan Yao's looking at doing it. And I think there's this, there's still that perception in Britain where a kebab is something you go for at 2.30 in the morning after being to the pub or bar. Whereas, you know, obviously if you go to Turkey, a kebab is actually, you know, it's a lovely plate of food. Um, so hopefully I think people's attitude to food over here now, they'll realise that a kebab's not something that you just get to kind of feed your uh, hunger after drinking. I think it's interesting that Meredith mentioned uh, that Scandinavian cuisine is is still doing well because for some reason I have been in the impression that it's it's people are slightly getting bored. May have obviously have something to do with the fact that I'm actually from the region as well. <laughs> do you, do you still think that Scandinavian cuisine has got, got something more to give to the world? I think so because you're seeing a great profusion now of chefs that came out of the Rene Redzepi Noma school. Mm. And he's been brilliant at promoting and helping them um, spread their wings and all the rest of it. And, for instance, the Time magazine food writer who used to be based in Madrid has just moved to Copenhagen. So there's a lot more action up there now. And the restaurateurs that I mentioned before, the uh, Setis, are moving, opening a restaurant in Copenhagen. So I don't think it's by any means finished. Because if you look at the overall international trends, which were originally molecular cuisine, el bully, fat duck, and then you had the Noma foraging natural cuisine, and it's gone back slightly to Spain with uh, Sela Can Roca mm. and other ones in the Basque country, like a brilliant place called Azomendi in Bilbao, three-star Michelin. Um, I think that um, Scandinavians got a lot way, long way to go. Two of the other restaurants that have opened in London story and dairy, I think, are both inspired yes. by that tradition. 
and both doing a brilliant job. And I suppose in a way you could say Clove Club as well. And when it comes to the Nordic or Scandinavian region, you seem to know it really well. Is there something, you know, that you think still hasn't been discovered in terms of individual places? Do you have your own favourites there? Yes, my um, favourite, well, at the very high end, um, there's a place called Fransen in Stockholm. Um, there's another one called Oaxen, which has just reopened after having been on an island west of Stockholm for a long time. And my new discovery this year was an extraordinary place called Daniel Berlin, which won the White Guide Award for the year um, down near Malmo. And the food there was extraordinary. All 80% of it was from a two-mile radius. The son's in the kitchen, the mother greets you, the father serves the wine. Unfortunately, the wine is all, to me, revolting natural wine, which is undrinkable. Um, but I've had a word with him. I've said, please put on some other wine for serious people to have. And uh, I'm sure he will in time. By the way, we're going to be talking about drinks next, straight after this break. The industrial internet has the power to improve the way we live and enjoy our lives by boosting productivity in almost everything from aviation to healthcare. Monocle spoke with GE's Vice President Bill Rue about the social effect of using such a dynamic innovation. What are the social benefits of this technology? Well, if you think about the industries we're talking about, aviation, it's wouldn't you like to have a better travel experience? Think about power and water. If you don't have outages or you can predict and prevent outages, if you think just about oil and gas and the ability to produce more effectively, that's a great example. And healthcare is a great opportunity to utilize the technology to deliver healthcare more efficiently. I think this is really where the big change and the big opportunity in healthcare is productivity and operational improvement. GE, imagination at work. You are listening to the Section E special of The Globalist on Monocle 24 with me, Marcos Hippi. We continue with our studio guests with a discussion on which drinks made the year 2013. Well, craft beer was one of the big things of 2013. In the US, even the president was set to brew his own beer. Earlier this year, Ashley Cleek gave us a tour of Alabama's growing craft beer movement. Here in the South, people will say, well, there's, there's Mary, she's good people, or, and that's where it kind of came from. That's Michael Sellers. He's one of the owners of Good People. Only a couple years ago, this scene didn't exist. Few people in Birmingham drank craft beer, and breweries in Alabama operated underground. The South is typically about 10 years behind trend-wise. So while small breweries across the U.S. were making interesting beers, like IPAs, coffee-flavored beers, ciders... Alabama was stuck in 1930s prohibition. A bunch of laws made both drinking new craft beers and brewing beer illegal. There was just no variety of beer. We couldn't get anything. That's Craig Shaw. Now he's the brewmaster at Avondale Brewery across town in Birmingham. Basically, it's what I say about Alabama in general. You tell somebody you can't have it, they're going to want it more. So I said, you know what? I'm a creative guy. I'm going to start making my own. So Craig and Michael and dozens of other home brewers made beer in their basements. They met clandestinely because making beer was illegal. We did the, uh, the Yahoo groups, and we, we did it that way, and that's how everybody joined the group, and then we had meet at an undisclosed location. <laughs> people said it was like speeding. You just don't want to do it too much. So people did kind of keep it under wraps. You didn't want to be blatant and obvious. Then in 2009, things started to change. A grassroots group called Free the Hops got involved and started to lobby to change the law in Alabama. They went to work on the first law. It said beer could be no more than 6%. They won. Now beers can be 13.9% alcohol. Michael at Good People says this let brewers experiment with different types of beer. What that does for a brewery is it opens up the amount of um, different styles of beer that you can produce. So we can go from, you know, a, a big Russian imperial stout or a barley wine down to, you know, some sort of, um, you know, wheat beer or something of that nature. So it, it really opens up the spectrum of what you can do as a brewery. Slowly, the brewery started to make beers that tasted like coffee, hoppy beers, sour beers. And they started to convert people who drank only corporate beers like Budweiser or Coors Light into craft beer drinkers. 
Then Free the Hops went after the next law, to allow breweries like Avondale and Good People to have a tap room, a place where people can sit and drink beer. So this is the brew house. This is the, the big version of the one that uh, my little homebrew set up. At Avondale Brewery, huge silver fermentation tanks lie on one side of the bar. All right, here's the, the yeast. As they drink, customers can watch the brewers, checking the thermometers, adding hops, making the beer that they are drinking. This is what America used to look like before uh, Prohibition. It's a pub. It's a public house. It's where people, like we see over here right now at our tap room, people come after work and get to see their neighbors and meet their neighbors. And now people are proud of this area. And they come out here. And to see the changes, and they feel the, the pride that we feel as well. And um, that, I mean, it really does. It's a place for friends and neighbors to come together and a community to come together. And the community has come together. Breweries are opening up all over the state. A local retailer says that Alabamians are fiercely loyal to local beers like Avondale and Good People. They won't buy others. Craig thinks this is just the beginning. He believes in the power of beer. I think beer can save the world. Well, beer has saved the world many times. I mean, it's the reason why we uh, quit being gathered and hunters to agri uh, agriculture-based society. Um, the monks brewed beer in the Middle Ages, and they didn't have good drinking water. Um, beer can turn around a neighborhood and make it, make it a good place for a family to go as well. Beer's, beer, beer is a good thing. That was Ashley Cleek reporting from Alabama, and here we continue the discussion in the studio with Adam Hyman, Bruce Palling, and Meredith Erickson. What do you think, when we think about all these phenomena, 2013 was very clearly the year when the craft beer movement very strongly took over many major cities, including London. What exactly happened? I guess it ties into the whole thing why we're sitting around this table today talking about food and drink because people like to explore, they like to set up their own microbreweries and you get more people who've left jobs in the city to to, to, to go and do stuff that they that they enjoy. And I think, you know, like, like anything in life, if, if everyone's just sitting there drinking the same beer produced by the same producer around the world, it's it's a bit it's a bit boring. So people have explored. I guess it's the same as as wine and spirits. People um, have tried to produce different beers, and it's it's been a success, and people like it. Do you think that's got something to do with this back to basics theme that we've been talking about a bit earlier in the show as well? Meredith just mentioned a while ago about you know economic circumstances and all that, which kind of makes people think differently. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, um, you know, um, let's say, you know, John works at Morgan Stanley and he's lost his job. And of course, he loves drinking beer. And <laughs> it's really for someone who's made millions of 40K, um, you know, uh, uh, investment is really not very much to set up your own distillery or, or to have someone come in and also do their distillery part time. Um, and it's a great lifestyle. Uh, and you get to drink beer every day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think, yeah, and, and I think it goes back to the thing. Whereas customers like having local produce and drink to choose from now, don't they? Because anyone can go and drink a well-known lager from. I, I won't name any names, but you could probably do it globally now. Whereas certain craft beers you can only find in in places like London or New York. What about other defining drinks of the year two thousand and thirteen? Should we talk about these natural wines now, Bruce? Sure. I mean, I think that they're, they're plateauing out, really. They, they were very fashionable, and several restaurants just served them alone. But um, in places like Noma, which had a, they started the whole movement in, in um, Scandinavia, Pontus was the sommelier there, um, they were very quick to make sure they had other wine as well as what's called natural wine, because... It's a problem if you know a lot about wine and have been drinking it for decades to suddenly be confronted with stuff that really, for me, tastes like fermented cider. It doesn't taste as if it's uh, going to last more than 30 seconds in the glass, let alone 30 years in a bottle. And I think it's um, sort of a cult. People imagine because foraging is good, because local um, produce is good, that somehow something made simp simp simply without any human intervention is also good. 
And wine is not a natural product anyway, so I don't see what's wrong with creating it in the way we've been for thousands of years. I think it's very sweet that natural wine has got a good story, you know. It's kind of organic, natural and lovely. But maybe the taste doesn't quite... Well, that's you know. what matters more than anything else. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's also it's also incredibly expensive, I think, compared to your average wine. It's, it's, it's not cheap. I think I have to weigh in right now. Um, I think that there are, uh, I think that in general, our palates are um, becoming lighter and we're drinking, we're looking forward to more effervescent. Um, people my age and, you know, I, I've worked 10 years in the restaurant uh, world, in the industry, and um, I can tell you that uh, everyone, you know, is drinking wines from the Jura and, um, of course, Burgundy. Um, I think Champagne is especially an interesting one. Um, You are spending a bit, so it's really important to be well-researched. And there's so many incredible uh, personalities and characters in the Champagne world right now. I Uh, tend to agree with what you say because most Champagne, non-vintage Champagne put out by the big houses is undrinkable. It's just bland, sugary nonsense. It doesn't have any soul. And that's where I think natural wine excels in this sort of bubbly light, effervescent sort of style. It's when you get the sort of reds, including stuff from uh, Barolo or from some some of the Burgundies, that I just find them undrinkable and don't really enjoy the experience. Mm -hmm. But I think in international terms, Burgundy is making a comeback. I just was talking to a friend of mine in Hong Kong today who organizes the grandest private dinners in Asia. And he was saying that in the past two years, all of his top clients have stopped drinking Bordeaux and are now only drinking Burgundy. And that's something that is, I suspect, going to happen a lot of other places too. I think that, to be honest, I feel like um, Hong Kong is the last to catch on to that. And because um, all the clients are drinking that in Hong Kong now, kids, people my age are, are starting to think like, Burgundy is over. And this is this gets back to this this conversation we were, we were talking earlier about Jancis Robinson um, from the FT, uh, one of the most famous and, I mean, for all reasons, uh, wine critics. And, um, you know, she was saying that she was in New York and that basically uh, it's completely trend-based and um, too, way, way, way too much so that we should definitely drink and blind taste wine based on what we love, not just because of who the producers are or mm. because it's naturally based. But um, yeah, it's just getting quicker and quicker, isn't it? The, the trends of, of wine drinking. Absolutely. No, it's, but I think in the terms of the international impact, the people that he was talking about, my friend in Hong Kong, are the people who jet over for private dinners mm. in uh, California or London or Frankfurt. So they're not behind the times, but they're just representing the new trends. And when you look at the big drinks of 2013, could you give other examples of which drinks have actually been getting more attention than before, the risers? Yeah, for me, it has to be Aperol. I mean, you can't go into any bar now and there's just Aperol everywhere. It's, um, I have to admit, I wasn't really aware of it apart from when I went to northern Italy, northern Italy and you uh, walk down the streets and people are drinking these bright orange glasses of um well, it's obviously Aperol, but you don't know what it is. And then suddenly, um, I know uh, Russell Norman, who owns Polpo, um, started it over here. It will definitely kind of brought it back into the mainstream. But uh, yeah, it it, uh, it has to be Aperol for me. It's, it's now everywhere and um, I quite like it as well. Any other drinks you would like to mention? I, I think we have to talk about coffee. We have to talk um, about coffee, absolutely. Independent coffee houses and... Um, yeah, I mean, especially in London, you now walk down Soho and there's always a new coffee place that's popped up. And I think it's I think it's good. And you also start to realise that some of the well-known high street coffee uh, shops here really do serve actually pretty, pretty poor coffee. I think, and with coffee, I think that's where my uh, my haterdom kind of ends because I uh, the more great coffee the better. You want to, on a, at a second's notice, you want to be able to turn into a shop and to grab at least a decent cup. And I think that's very recent. Did we learn much more about what great coffee consists of in the year 2013? I don't know whether it was an educational thing. I, I, I think it's I think it's partly a kind of a fashion and trend thing as well. I mean, you just walk down the street now, probably in most Western cities, and people are always carrying a coffee cup aren't they um because they've they've popped in for their morning coffee um i'm I'm guessing it's a great industry to be in financially as well i i 
don't know what the figures are, but I'm sure, uh, well, I know I spend probably way too much money on coffee. Certainly in places like Melbourne, um, it's taken over from beer almost. Mm. And I also saw another statistic just recently that there are now more food-related businesses in Melbourne than any other businesses, which is extraordinary. That is quite something. To get back to something we discussed or a topic we touched a little a bit earlier, when it comes to movement of people, it seems that there is more interaction. Bruce, you've mentioned many times that you've been traveling around the world and seeing a lot. And, you know, these top chefs we're talking about, they do it all the time. Do you think that actually changes the world of food drastically? Do you think, obviously, ideas spread more, but where is this all going to? It's having a huge impact. I mean, for instance, well, my son was staging at Massimo Bottura until two days ago, which was is the most famous high-end restaurant in Italy. But Massimo Bottura is regularly on the telephone to René Redzepi for an hour at night, at midnight, discussing something and finding out what he's up to and where he's going to do whatever. So there's a huge amount of interaction now amongst the top two or three dozen chefs. And below that, you've got the people staging. And it's so easy. You can just go to Noma and you'll work there for three months. You'll have to pay for your accommodation and you won't get paid. But you have an incredible opportunity to learn whatever is happening in that kitchen. And it's not just there. It's in places like La Strance in Paris or um, other other top restaurants uh, no longer El Bulli, but uh, El Selic and Rocca, etc. And that's having a huge impact on world cuisine, I think. A good, a good impact. Yeah, I think, I think that it's having a very, a very positive impact. Um, I feel, if I'm, if I'm honest, I feel a bit nostalgic because, uh, you know, Fred, um, the chef owner of, of Joe Beef, uh, he, he started in the restaurant business, you know, when he was um, 17, 18 years old. And he would save up to to buy Paul Bocuse's books, um, to read about Paul Bocuse. And it's just uh, two years ago, I guess, and he was 38, he he saved up and he went to Paul Bocuse with his wife. And um, there's something nice. There's something really nice to working that hard and looking up to someone so much. And Or, or just, you know, a couple of years ago with my own example, uh, saving up to go to Paris and, and eating at these places that you could only, you've only heard from people hmm. from... And, I know that that's over. I understand it. But I think about this. I really think about this every day. Uh, and it, it makes me sad. Blame, blame social media. <laughs> oh, 100%. 100%. But I think it's really important. All the restaurateurs that I work with in London, they, they need to travel to go and experience different cuisines and how restaurants are run. And it's not just the food. It's the decor, the design. Um, I think it's really important. I also I also just want to add something really quickly. Um, uh, Ariana Octopinti, who you probably know, the uh, really famous kind of it girl in the wine world, um, Sicilian winemaker. She's thirty years old. She she smokes cigarettes and drinks like crazy, and um, she uh, stayed in Sicily to take over her grandfather's um, vineyard. And she said something really interesting. She said, you know, people think it takes so much courage to go out into the world and to try new things and bring them and bring them back, or or to, to move from home. She she said to me, I think it takes a lot of courage to stay where you are yeah. and, to, and to not move and, and to cultivate something so meaningful uh, in that place. That's a really beautiful thought. And before I let you go, just really briefly, before we run out of time to conclude this, what do you wish were the food trends for 2014, Adam? Um, I'm hoping we see some more Korean food. Um, I really like Korean food and I think people have been talking about it for the past two or three years and it hasn't seemed to quite arrive yet in London. So yeah, I'm hoping for some Korean food in London. Meredith, what are you looking forward to? Okay, on the positive spectrum, I'm looking forward to more Austrian and German cuisine. Um, I like Herman, the German, that little um, schnitzel spot yes, in, in Soho is really he's fun. Good, yeah. uh, on the negative spot with what we were just talking about, I want, I hope that somehow, somewhere, the, the Twitter noise ends so people can can kind of, and it's not going to, but uh, that somehow, the, the, especially in the food world, things got a bit more quiet Bruce. I guess my, my general plea is for the diminishing impact of the chain restaurant or the restaurants owned by groups, no matter whether they're the best chefs in the world or some local businessman. I'd like to see more individually owned 
restaurants with chefs at the kitchen all the time because that's where you get more interesting experiences. Thank you very much for this. Bruce Palling, former food columnist for the Wall Street Journal Europe and restaurant consultant, Adam Hyman, restaurant consultant and publisher of The Code Bulletin and Meredith Erickson Food, writer and co-author of the recently published book Le Pitchen. And that's all we have time for. This special edition of The Globalist was produced by Fernando Augusto Bacheco and Santiago Rodriguez Tarditi, and our studio manager was Chris Chilvers. To play us out today, talking about the rise of Latin America, here is Brazilian DJ João Brazil. This is Love Banana. You have been listening to the Section E special of The Globalist with me, Marcus Hippi. Thank you for listening and Happy New Year. <laughs>